0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the preamble podcast in an effort to consolidate the things I've been thinking about. I've decided to begin a longer form podcast style episode, which I plan to release weekly. This episode and future ones will be available on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can click the link in the description if you prefer to listen to this episode in your favorite podcast player. And that'll bring you to the correct podcast distribution app, depending on which device you're using. Also, as a reminder, I've started a preamble community on Locals.com. The link for that is in the description as well. There's not much on there yet, but I have posted a few essays. If you're interested, you can join me there. I'll be releasing premium content such as additional videos and podcast episodes, Q&A sessions, writings on special topics, and we'll also be running a monthly book club. Do keep an eye out for a post from me within the next few days, as I will be sending out a code you can use to gain three free months of premium membership to our Locals.com community. As always, I depend on your support, so please remember to like the video, and most importantly, share this episode. It goes a long way to helping the channel grow. Without further ado, episode number one of the preamble. About a week ago, on January 22nd, users on Reddit in a subreddit called Wall Street Bets initiated a short squeeze on GameStop, pushing the stock price up significantly. This took place shortly after Citron Research, which is an investment newsletter published by an activist short seller, put out some research predicting that GameStop's stock price would decrease. It was understood that there were multiple large hedge funds with huge short positions in the stock, which means they were betting the stock price would go down. At one point, due to the flood of stock buying from Redditors, the GameStop stock was up 700%, and the volatility got so high that it caused trading to be halted multiple times. A few days later, on the 26th, when the stock closed the day up by close to 93%, Elon Musk tweeted out a link to the Wall Street Bet subreddit, which caused the stock to go up another 60% in after-hours trading. Five days after the GameStop short squeeze was initiated, the official Wall Street Bets Discord server was banned for "quote hateful and discriminatory content." Discord claimed that the ban had nothing to do with the short squeeze. Meanwhile, back on Reddit, moderators made the Wall Street Bets subreddit private for a short while, but it was made public again about an hour later. Within a week, the subreddit gained about 2.5 million new subscribers. For comparison, it took the subreddit nine years to reach the 2.2 million subscribers it had prior to this flood of newcomers. The New York Times reported that as a result of the sharp increase in GameStop's stock price, 0.72, a large hedge fund with nearly $20 billion in assets under management, may have lost as much as 15% of their entire fund, which amounts to billions of dollars. There's another short-selling hedge fund, Melvin Capital. Uh, They were forced to close out their position at a cost of nearly $3 billion. Many investment professionals, government officials, technocrats, and members of the establishment media chimed in with their thoughts on the situation. The acting head of the SEC said the agency was, quote, monitoring the situation, while the former head of its Office of Internet Enforcement, John Stark, said, quote, I can't imagine there isn't an open investigation and probably a formal order to find out who's on these message boards. Some people made claims of illegal market manipulation on the part of the Redditors. Others warned about the dangers of unsophisticated investors placing bets in the market, while others called, increased regulation of retail investing. Michael Burry, the guy who became famous for predicting and betting on the housing crash of 2008 and who was the central figure in the book and later movie, The Big Short, said that he thinks the huge rise in GameStop's stock price suggests that something illegal is going on. There were some media types who tried to tie this Reddit revolt of sorts to right-wing extremism, even going so far as to compare the coordinated buying up of the stock to the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. So this story has attracted very intense public interest and has turned into the stuff of meme legend. And this story is about so much more than a one-off anomaly in the strange world of financial markets, the event itself, and even more so the ruling class's reaction to it, point to something far deeper. And in this episode, I'd like to understand what that is. To do so, let's back up a bit and unpack exactly what happened. And first we need to understand what short selling is or what it means to short a stock. Usually when we talk about investing in equities or stocks, we're talking about going long or betting that the price will go up. Well, shorting is betting that the stock price will go down. What happens is you borrow a stock and immediately sell it at the current price. If the price goes down, you buy it back at a lower price and then return the stock to wherever you borrowed it from and you pocket the difference. The risks in the case of shorting a stock are higher because the losses are theoretically infinite, right? The stock can theoretically, keep climbing to infinity so when you buy a stock or go long of course your losses are limited to the amount of your initial investment because the stock can only go down to zero so if you buy a stock at say fifty dollars and it goes down to zero then you lose fifty dollars if however you short you were to short the stock at 50 and the stock goes up 51 52 60 70 80 100 and it keeps going up well your losses just continue to mount and you can have theoretically infinite losses So a short squeeze, which is what happened here, is when usually a party or many parties with a large uh, short interest in a stock are facing a situation where there is a sudden and dramatic increase in the price of a stock because there's some sort of flurry of buying activity, and that forces the short sellers to cover their position, in other words, to go ahead and buy stock to be able to return the ones that they borrowed, in other words, to close out their short position and that itself causes of course the stock to rise up even more because they are now bringing in buying demand and putting upward pressure on the stock price so it creates this sort of snowball effect where the price keeps going up their losses are mounting and they have to rush to close out their position and in doing so they themselves cause the market to go up even more and presumably people pile on even more as they see the price going up And it pushes the stock price even higher and that so that's what happened in this situation so the the summary really is that a few weeks ago there was a redditor on wall street bets he noticed that a hedge fund had taken a massive amount of short trades against gamestop and they convinced everyone in this thread to join forces and buy up as much of gamestop stock as possible that made the price rise and the hedge funds that had the short position in the stock started to lose billions of dollars. Eventually, the hedge fund had to close their short position out and buy all the GameStop stock back at a much, much higher price, which sent the price up even higher still. That is what we call a short squeeze. Now the hedge fund is declaring bankruptcy and the Reddit thread is or has been combing through other hedge funds to try to figure out what massive short exposure they have so they can short squeeze them into bankruptcy as well. In other words, start buying up all the stocks that they have a heavy short interest in. All of Wall Street is saying that the public joining together in this fashion should be illegal, but the argument goes that really they are just upset because they're losing at their own game. Okay, so that's what happened. And there were a number of events that took place after this. The first was that The Verge reported that Discord, the chat service banned the server of the Wall Street Bets subreddit. And they told The Verge that they didn't ban the server for financial fraud, but rather because it continued to allow quote, hateful and discriminatory content after repeated warnings, which of course is not only laughable, but has kind of become the generic excuse for Wall Street types to shut down anyone that they don't want on the internet. And so it now appears that a handful of billionaires or hedge funds can decide who can and can't be on, which of course is part of the uh, reason why regulating uh, hate speech is itself a problem because who exactly is going to be regulating it and the risk that it is used as a weapon and a cudgel to silence your political or in this case financial opponents is obviously very great. So that's the issue there. And of course, people have been wondering Well, which hedge fund was it? Was it Citadel or was it Point Seventy Two? Did they just make a quick call to the Discord people and say, hey, we need to make sure that the rally of the GameStop stock doesn't continue, so we need you to shut it down. Anyways, Discord's full statement was as follows. They said, the server has been on our trust and safety team's radar for some time due to occasional content that violates our community guidelines, including hate speech, glorifying violence, and spreading misinformation. Over the past few months, we have issued multiple warnings to the server admin. Today, we decided to remove the server and its owner from Discord for continuing to allow hateful and discriminatory content after repeated warnings. To be clear, we did not ban the server due to financial fraud related to GameStop or other stocks. Discord welcomes a broad variety of personal finance discussions, from investment clubs and day traders to college students and professional financial advisors. We are monitoring the situation. And in the event there are allegations of illegal activities, we will cooperate with authorities as appropriate. Now, of course, this is completely see-through and no one believes it. Literally every single Discord server, without exaggeration, you can find in the chats something that violates community guidelines. There's all sorts of shit posting and hate speech and glorifying violence that goes on, certainly in any Discord server that's related to a subreddit. So the idea that it just so happens to be at a time when people were calling for the pain to stop because the poor hedge funds were under attack by this coordinated effort on the the part of Redditors. It just so happens to be that at exactly that moment, Discord decided to ban the server. No one's buying it. No one believes it. So that was one of the first reactions was the banning of the Discord server. The press and the media were also in a complete panic. The short seller, Andrew, left. He's the guy from Citron Research, who I guess originally had published the research uh, predicting that the stock price would go down and the basis for them initiating their short sell on the stock. He said, I didn't realize it was this cult like and he denounced it and said it was just a get rich quick scheme, which, of course, is hilarious because the tactics used by many of these hedge funds in terms of short selling uh, and so on are themselves get rich quick schemes. I wanna note that there's nothing wrong with short selling per se. That is a completely legitimate mechanism in financial investing. And it's something that actually defines what hedge funds do, right? They are not limited. There are long only funds that are only allowed to take long positions. Hedge funds do not have that kind of limitation. And it's completely legitimate for a hedge fund to do research, identify catalysts for a stock price to go down and essentially predict that the that eventually the market will become aware of those catalysts and it will be priced into the stock. So they might identify one or two areas where people are either failing to appreciate one factor or overreacting to another factor and that therefore on their analysis, the fair price for the stock should be much lower. And so they initiate a short position in the stock. The argument goes that this is part of the the function of places like hedge funds, which is to allow for the efficient allocation of capital. And you can have cases, of course, where, for example, tech companies are running sky high and there's really no justification for it. And so a fund might initiate a short position in the stock and they are rewarded for essentially saying that the stock is not worth what the price currently uh, reflects. Anyways, we had the Massachusetts Secretary of State, Bill Galvin, on the record saying that this Reddit campaign had, quote, no basis in reality. And as I mentioned before, we had uh, Michael Burry, the, uh, the hedge fund guy who bet against subprime mortgages. And he was, he was the um, person who was lionized in the big short, the book and the movie. He called this uh, short squeeze unnatural, insane, and dangerous. Moving on, we had calls for regulation. We had TD Ameritrade and Robinhood halt trading in these securities, which caused huge backlash and thousands of negative reviews on those apps on both Google and uh, the Apple app stores. Now, there were many people who following the decision from Robinhood to halt trading in GameStop, among other stocks, people started to call into question the relationship that Robinhood had with Citadel Securities. Bloomberg News had previously reported that 40% of Robinhood's revenue was derived from selling customer orders to market-making firms, including Citadel Securities and Two Sigma, which is a practice known as payment for order flow. And the Washington Post had also previously reported that Robinhood routed more than half of its customers' orders to Citadel, which was its largest market-making partner by volume. Now, Citadel Securities happens to be the sister company to Citadel LLC, which along with 0.72 Asset Management, the, the large hedge fund, had invested close to $3 billion in Melvin Capital. So there's some question there about unfairness going on and collusion between these multiple players that essentially one of these these funds or one of these asset management firms could just make a phone call over to Robinhood and say hey you know we're getting destroyed over here we're taking a huge bath and we need you to shut down trading in these securities obviously a very concerning allegation if true so yeah as Robinhood restricted the trading in GameStop shares which essentially put a stop to the growth of the stock's value right the price stopped Continuing to climb because no one could buy it and push the price up in that way, people started to allege that Citadel Securities directed Robinhood to do that. Of course, Citadel Securities came out saying they didn't instruct any brokerage to suspend or limit trading, and Robinhood denied the allegations that it had been pressured by Citadel at all. Then we had something similar happen on the 27th. We had White House Press Secretary Jen Sackey. She said that the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and others in the Biden administration were monitoring the situation and Nancy Pelosi, the speaker of the house said that Congress is going to be reviewing it. But some reporters raised concerns about this because there is a potential conflict of interest in regards to Janet Yellen because she had received $810,000 from Citadel after the end of her term as the chair of the fed, as well as $7 million in total from various firms for public speaking appearances. So This is a part of the problem here, this sort of nepotism and close relationship and the revolving door between Wall Street and politicians, government officials, is a major problem. And people see that, they understand it, and it calls into question what exactly is happening at the level of governmental action. You essentially have a group of very powerful people, elites, people who are at the top of powerful institutions people who have official positions and roles within government who have very, very close ties to the people affected by the movements in these securities and in these equities. So the close relationship between Wall Street and government has always been a problem. And in fact, uh, we know the numbers. We know that 90% of political contributions to presidential candidates this last election cycle went unsurprisingly to biden so that suggests that biden is very much beholden to wall street and it really makes people question whether there will be any objectivity in the treatment of these issues and calls into question whether anyone should be surprised how the biden administration reacts and whether anyone should be surprised that their actions always fall out in a way that favors The economic interests of these Wall Street firms and the idea that Wall Street is paying millions of dollars for these elected officials, these government officials, just to share their knowledge with them is, of course, laughable. It is very well understood that you are getting paid millions of dollars for speaking engagements because there's going to be some return. It's a quid pro quo, and it is a way of Wall Street installing people into the government that will be aligned with the interests of the firm. So it's it's a major, major problem. Now, a Robinhood customer did file a class action lawsuit against the company, and it was filed in the, I believe, uh, district court for the Southern District of New York. And the, this class action lawsuit claims that Robinhood purposely, willfully, and knowingly removed the stock GME, that's the ticker for GameStop, from its trading platform in the midst of an unprecedented stock rise, thereby deprived retail investors of the ability to invest in the open market. And it also accused Robinhood of manipulating the open market. There was another class action filed in the Northern District of Illinois claiming that Robinhood's decision to halt trades of Blackberry, Nokia, and AMC was made, quote, to protect institutional investment at the detriment of retail customers. So, what's really going on here is what pretty much everyone is perceiving as just rank hypocrisy and selfishness, right? People are calling for regulation, calling for Robinhood and other uh, apps to uh, halt trading, and they're doing so because their model is being disrupted, right? It's the idea that The small retail investors are the plebs, and they aren't supposed to be able to participate in this game. Any other time, the firms don't want any regulation or interference into what's going on. But that's really a joke. That's just hypocrisy. They only don't want regulation insofar as regulation would disrupt their own positions in the market. But as soon as the masses come in, in other words, this coordinated buying on the part of uh, Redditors, when that happens, suddenly they're all about regulation and they make a phone call to the people who are beholden to them in government and they get it to stop. I mentioned before, even Nancy Pelosi, when she was asked about manipulation and what's going on on Wall Street right now, she said, we'll all be reviewing it. As if, as if it's the business of Congress to worry about what a bunch of day traders On Reddit are doing. Suddenly they're they're cashing in for once and now it's suddenly a major problem that has to come to the attention of the government. Now some people even call this white supremacy and this is where I think the jig is just up, right? If you thought that allegations of white supremacy were appropriate when applied to the storming of the Capitol in DC on January 6th, a lot of people don't think so anymore because it's so obvious when it's used here that it's being used as a weapon to destroy people that are interrupting the game that other very powerful people and firms are playing. So there's a total loss of confidence and everyone can see the rank hypocrisy and the collusion among companies and politicians. So in essence, this is a populist revolt against Wall Street. And I think what's so interesting about it is that it seems to cross partisan lines right? It's right-wingers and left-wingers alike are cheering the Redditors on and they're all laughing at the response from the media and technocrats. And we'll see if this leads to any kind of permanent awakening or whether people will just forget about it in a week. I think that the logical response would be for people to say, oh, you know what? All those claims of extremism and Nazism and right-wing extremists and white supremacists that's all just being used as a weapon as a cudgel to silence people's opponents because if it's being applied to us and we're just a bunch of shit posters on reddit well then what are the chances that that was being used in any sort of honest way as applied to other people right so there's this creation of of a new meta-narrative that says that there are that there's some sort of epidemic of, of white supremacy that is uh, coming out in full force in many different areas of our society and in our politics. And it's a problem. We need to crack down on it. We need to have new anti-terrorism laws. But of course, when it's just thrown in the direction of a bunch of Redditors who are making money by initiating a short squeeze, causing huge losses to these hedge funds, everyone can see through it. Now it's obvious that it's just being used as a weapon to silence people because suddenly the masses are playing in the turf of these firms who are used to having no sort of real competition from everyone else. It's the domain of the elites being essentially trespassed upon from their perspective and they don't like it and they're going to do everything they can and say everything they can to squash it as soon as they possibly can. The next item of note in this story is something that truly exemplifies the way in which the government has become completely inimical to the public interest. Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted out a couple of days ago. She said, casino-like swings in stock prices of GameStop reflect wild levels of speculation that don't help GameStop's workers or customers and could lead to market instability. Today, I told the SEC to explain what exactly it's doing to prevent market manipulation. And she posted the letter. Dear Acting Chair Lee, I'm writing regarding the recent surge in share prices for the video game retailer GameStop, whose stocks are up 1,700% this month, including Wednesday's climb of 135%. Blah, blah, blah. These wild swings in the value of GameStop and other companies are subject to similar bets by traders are detached from the factors that traditionally help establish a company's value to investors. She goes on and she produces a list of demands from the FCC. And one of them includes the following question. To what extent did online message boards such as those on Reddit or broader social media amplification impact the fluctuation of GameStop's prices? Did any of these practices violate existing security laws? So let's get this straight. Elizabeth Warren wants to go after the Redditors. This is a woman who claims to be focused on consumer protection, economic opportunity for disadvantaged, social safety net, other such issues. And here she is essentially publishing propaganda for hedge funds. Elizabeth Warren, ladies and gentlemen. So this is just a perfect exemplification of the manner in which the government has become completely at odds with the interest of people. Everyone, left, right, center, understands that the people who coordinated the buying on Reddit, this was just one modest attempt to wrestle back some semblance of power from a system that is completely rigged against the general population and the masses. And Elizabeth Warren's contribution to this debate or this issue is to send a letter to the SEC demanding that they analyze the potential wrongdoing of people on Reddit. Truly incredible stuff. So that's the first story I wanted to go through. I think it's very interesting, there's more to be said. And like I said, we'll see whether this begins a new permanent awakening or whether everyone will just forget about it in a week. All right, next up I wanted to bring to your attention an article I read recently in Tablet Magazine Entitled Journalists Mobilize Against Free Speech. The new generation of media crusaders clamors for government control over what you see, hear, and read and for banning their competition. This is an article, again in Tablet Magazine, by Armin Rosen. It's very well written and I recommend you check it out. The article is about this increasing trend that we're seeing towards outright skepticism over the value of free speech coming precisely from the people and outlets who should theoretically value it most, namely journalists. I'm not going to read the article in its entirety, but I just wanted to read the introduction because it sort of sets the stage for what this article is about. And then I was going to read a few of the instances which he highlights of media figures expressing skepticism over the value of free speech. So the article begins, American journalism once thought of itself as being inherently and institutionally pro free speech. Visitors to the museum, the media industry's temple of self-glorification on Constitution Avenue in Washington, were once greeted with the first amendment inscribed across 74 vertical feet of lofty marble. The museum has been closed since late 2019, its operators having discovered the hard way that the public doesn't share the media's heroic level of regard for itself. The museum was an anachronism in more ways than one. The idea that journalists themselves look upon the constitutional right to free expression with quasi religious awe is nearly as quaint as the idea the media could be the basis for a major D.C. tourist attraction. A publicly beloved press that earnestly believes in free speech now feels like it belongs to some fictive era of good feelings. These days, the American public distrusts the media more than it ever has confronted with this crisis of legitimacy today's corporate media increasingly advances ideas that would delight would-be power trippers of any party like establishing novel forms of government control over what you can see read and hear and identifying people with a broad range of unpopular or unapproved views as domestic terrorists public discourse is now a conflict space with social media serving as an information war zone the public intellectual Peter W. Singer declared in an essay published a few days after the alternately scary and farcical Trump riot on Capitol Hill, seamlessly adapting a framework of state-level physical violence to a discussion of constitutionally protected speech. In recent years, the United States has seen more severe acts of political violence and deadlier riots than the events at the Capitol, but American guarantees of free speech apparently should not survive the shocking image of Nancy Pelosi's office being ransacked. The notion that free expression is sedition's handmaiden, or that the prevention of treason should be a higher goal than the open exchange or exposure of allegedly dangerous arguments are not controversial views anymore. They pop up frequently among putatively liberal-minded commentators in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Media skepticism toward free expression actually began long before the Capitol riot and before Trump was elected. The New Yorker's Califa Sané anticipated the rising ambivalence toward the existing First Amendment regime when he likened speech nuts to gun nuts in a 2015 essay. Today, support for the mainstream American free speech norms of earlier, less Trump-addled times is increasingly cast as a kind of sinister eccentricity, as when Slate declared in the days after the Capitol assault that, quote, we have come to a moment in which one half of the country is fighting to be free of crippling, life-ending acts of stochastic terror, while another half of the same country is chillingly preoccupied with their right to just talk shit. How chilling to be preoccupied with one's individual rights, or at least to not understand that the legitimacy of one's constitutionally guaranteed freedoms depends on the, quote, moment that, quote, we might, quote, be in. Santa wasn't quite so sneering, and in the end he predicted that custom would override any late-breaking sense of national emergency. Perhaps America's First Amendment, like the Second, is ultimately a matter of national preference, he mused. In any case, Santa wasn't calling for anyone to suffer criminal penalties for protected speech. Santa's seeming lack of enthusiasm for finding or jailing people who disagree with him is getting less common among members of a media class determined to show that Enemies of the state are its enemies too. In a 2019 Washington Post opinion piece, Richard Stengel, the former managing editor of Time magazine and co-author of the Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela's now classic autobiography, argued that the U.S. was in need of hate speech laws, contending that, quote, the First Amendment should not protect hateful speech that can cause violence by one group against another. As the Biden administration's transition team leader for the U.S. Agency for Global Media, he will no doubt find plenty of support for his vision for state-regulated speech among a long list of regimes that journalists once professed to abhor. Here's a look at other outlets and media figures who have gone into hall monitor mode, revealing themselves to be skeptics of the very system of law and custom that enables their profession to exist in the first place. And then the article goes through a bunch of these situations where media types, journalists, and outlets such as the New York Times and others express what I would consider to be very disturbing views about the value and priority of free speech. So the first one is from Anand Giridharadas. It's time for this question to be front and center. Should Fox News be allowed to exist? The author, MSNBC talking head, New York University journalism professor, and former New York Times writer, Vice Talk Show host, and Aspen Institute fellow recently tweeted, brain-mashing as a business model shouldn't be legal. He continued, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't understand why you're not allowed to manufacture Bucatini that doesn't have a certain threshold of iron in it, but you can broadcast brain-mashing falsehoods and goad people toward terrorism. Shocking that Gerard Haradas is still permitted to roam free, given how brain-mashing I consider this entire line of reasoning to be. The Bill of Rights lacks a PASTA standards amendment, for starters, but there's an inherent arrogance, perhaps even an optimism, to pro-censorship arguments. No one ever expects their self-invented standards to be turned back against them. Next one, or another one that he highlights in the article, I'm not reading every single one of them, is from Emily Bazelon. America is drowning in lies, the essayist and journalist declared in the midst of a long piece in the New York Times Magazine last summer titled, The Problem of Free Speech, in an age of disinformation. Sure is, but whose lies, exactly? What are they? How can an average person be expected to tell lies from truth? Perhaps government censorship is the answer to this problem. Like many of the other proponents of controlled speech mentioned here, Bazelon's writing has a detectable winking quality to it. Don't worry, dear reader, you're not the one who's going to be censored. They are. In fact, the censorship, so-called, won't even be that bad. You'll hardly notice it. One thing that people might not immediately recognize when they hear scary-sounding words like censorship is that the act of controlling other people's speech can be gratifying, a psychic net positive for those who dream of a purified information space. Supporting censorship even shows that you're in touch with the most advanced currents of continental ideas. In Europe, they might have more regulations on speech, which is a nice way of saying that the government can fine or imprison you for speech is constitutionally protected in the united states but these countries remain democratic in fact they have created better conditions for their citizenry to sort what's true from what's not and to make informed decisions about what they want their societies to be thinking about censorship should inspire warm and cuddly thoughts perhaps of sipping glue wine up in schloss or digging into a plate of steaming olebollen beside a canal by contrast America suffers from a predictably gross excess of speech. Censorship of external critics by the government remains a serious threat under authoritarian regimes, Bazelon writes. But in the United States and other democracies, there is a different kind of threat, which may be doing more damage to the discourse about politics, news, and science. It encompasses the mass distortion of truth and overwhelming waves of speech from extremists that smear and distract. We simply can't have a first amendment with so much truth being distorted by people who disagree with us, can we? And yet another example from the Associated Press. Like ProPublica, the AP has discovered a shocking quote loophole exploited by ideological extremists. Podcasts, well, I know something about that. Podcasts made available by the two big tech companies let you tune into the world of the QAnon conspiracy theory, wallowing in President Donald Trump's false claims of a stolen election and bask in other extremism, reports the AP, warning that podcasting plays a particularly outsized role in propagating white supremacy, according to a 2018 report from the Anti-Defamation League. Has anyone investigated comic books yet? The lyrics of rap songs? If you haven't noticed yet, seditious, violence-inducing content is everywhere. And the last example from the article that I'll go through is from the Washington Post. The 1798 Sedition Act is traditionally looked upon as a low point in the history of the early republic, single-handed proof that something like the First Amendment had been necessary in order to prevent the new United States from lapsing into European-style despotism. Well, not anymore. On January 14th, the air still pungent with smoke from the smoldering Capitol, Notre Dame history professor Caitlin Marie Carter informed readers of the Washington Post, that maybe the Act had an idea or two worth considering after all. Maybe the Sedition Act was actually a missed opportunity to make our democracy better through government censorship, especially when it came to the horror of rhetorical attacks on government office holders. True, Carter noted, the legislation has long been vilified as a partisan ploy to suppress the Federalist Party's political opponents, but that partisan weaponization shouldn't cloud the fact that the Sedition Act was also advanced as a response to a perceived crisis of misinformation and its potential to undermine trust in elected officials for carter proponents of the sedition act did something important they highlighted the real threat misinformation posed and still poses to democracy and recognized that people are often either unable or unwilling to arrive at the truth amid a deluge of material like a lot of censorship fans carter doesn't define the exact legal remedy for speech she finds unacceptable or define notably elastic terms like undermining of trust in elected officials. But rest assured, some kind of remedy is needed to stave off the deluge. Truth must be protected by some external authority. Today, the task of safeguarding the truth is functionally left up to profit-driven tech companies, which is no better a solution than that offered by the Sedition Act. Though social media giants seem to have finally awakened to the danger of misinformation spread on their platforms, it took a violent insurrection To spur meaningful action, it may be too little too late. So those are the instances that the article goes through, and then it ends with the following. The lone and very much welcome note of balance comes from Jillian York of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who observes that censorship goes with the tide against what's popular in any given moment. Today, people considered part of the radical right are targeted. Tomorrow, she cautions, the tide might be against opposition activists. For the rising pro-censorship voices in media and beyond, history has no tides, just correct answers. What objection will today's anti-speech intellectuals mount if someone in power decides they're the ones who have it all wrong? So, that's the article. Very good. I recommend that you read it again. It's an article by Armin Rosen in... Uh, New York mag entitled Journalists Mobilize Against Free Speech. So this is a very chilling and disturbing trend that we need to be aware of and keep an eye on. We have the very people who should theoretically be the greatest advocates and defenders of free speech becoming openly skeptical and in opposition to it. And it should go without saying that People who are calling for the regulatory and punitive powers of the state to censor and silence people they disagree with simply cannot be trusted to do the kind of journalism that provides any value to us as citizens. I would say that it would do these people well to read John Stuart Mill's famous essay, On Liberty, and I would recommend to you, um, my audience as well, to read it if you haven't. It remains, I think, the most persuasive and stirring defense of free speech to date. I've always loved this quote from from that essay. Mill said, The beliefs which we have most warrant for have no safeguard to rest on, but a standing invitation to the whole world to prove them unfounded. And obviously, the idea that he's advocating for there simply cannot operate in a system wherein People are not allowed to speak freely no matter what we think of their ideas and their speech. All right, next I wanted to bring your attention to something that James Lindsay has been talking about a lot recently. If you don't know who James Lindsay is, he is one of the co-authors of the book, Cynical Theories, together with his co-author, Helen Pluckrose. He was one of the guys who was involved in the hoax papers where him and a couple of colleagues produced a bunch of hope papers and submitted them to well-regarded journals and they were approved and published as if they were serious research Uh, and the attempt was to basically show that academia has sort of been overtaken by ideology and has given up on an insistence on rigor and scientific method and that kind of thing. Anyways, he he also has a, a website, newdiscourses.com, where the goal, I guess, is to excavate and explain the sort of ideological roots of critical social justice. And James is pretty much an expert in all of this. He knows philosophy and postmodernism and all the, the roots of these uh, new sort of methods of scholarship. Anyways, one of the points that he made recently, which... Uh, is that we should begin the suggestion this is the suggestion that he made that people should begin to at every opportunity refer to the biden administration as neo-racists and the context for this of course is that we see the biden administration and all of the people surrounding it are making racial equity the sort of cornerstone of their administration we know that on the first day he came into office he rescinded Trump's executive order uh, order banning the use of critical race theory in all federal agencies. So what James, what James is suggesting is that we simply ask Biden and we ask the administration that what is it that you want to do? Every time that they suggest one of these new sort of approaches, uh, you know, equity, things that involve racial segregation, essentializing race, and so on, we should ask, what is it that you want to do? Do you want to do race or sex scapegoating? Do you want to do race or sex discrimination? race or sex stereotyping or do you want to suggest that certain races are fundamentally evil which element of racism is it precisely that you want to participate in Joe and state it very clearly very loudly don't mince any words tell the president and his administration that you are neo-racists and James makes the point that for the first time since the 1960s if you think about it we have a federal government that is institutionally racist, and many state governments now are as well, right? They are formulating legislation that will discriminate on the basis of race or will give certain advantages to people based on nothing other than race. So the Democratic Party has become neo-racist, and they should be called out on that. And that's, that's as I said, when Joe Biden rescinded Trump's executive order, banning critical race theory in federal agencies we should we should ask him well which neo racist thing is it that you're looking to do exactly and when we see the same kind of stuff showing up in the media when we see the same kind of stuff coming from democratic politicians we should be asking them again and again precisely which neo racist practice is it that you want to adopt and james suggests that we need to be doing this relentlessly and accurately so accurately means finding ways that they're actually endorsing racist policies whether it's through racial equity programs whether it's through rescinding certain executive orders forcing certain types of training or concepts or enforcing the idea of racial privilege onto certain races and racial oppression onto others and point it out call it what it is the people who endorse and advocate for and support these ideas are neo-racists and again As James notes, this this is the first openly racist federal government, both in the White House and in Congress, that we've had in decades. And this is really a tactic that James is suggesting. How effective it will be is anyone's guess. But this is his suggestion that we give up on this idea of referring to these people as the regressive left or any other such terms that were in vogue amongst those of us who've been critical of the people who espouse these ideas over the last, let's say, five, ten years, no. Call them what they are. They are neo-racists. They have reinvented racism, and they are pushing racism. And he suggests, again, never miss an opportunity to call this administration, this Congress, these participants, whether they be Democrat or Republican or independent, what they are, which is neo-racists. Make it clear and be prepared to defend that and define what neo racism is. Neo racism is racism that has been reinvented. The same mistake of racism that we made over three centuries ago has been reinvented in a new form. It has institutional power, it has political power, it has cultural power, and really, in the language of uh, critical social justice, it has to- total cultural hegemony behind it. So, start calling it out. Call out the administration. Call out the politicians and their enablers in the media and in universities for what they are. They are neo racists, plain and simple. I uh, highly recommend checking out James Lindsay's podcast, New Discourses, as well as the website. He's also on Patreon and Subscribestar if you want to check out some premium content on there. I find that it's always very useful. He's one of the few people who really understands these sort of intellectual. anti-intellectual roots as the case may be of critical social justice and critical race theory and all of that so do give that uh, a look if and when you get a chance that's it for episode number one we'll be back here next week for episode number two so please be sure to subscribe if you're listening on youtube subscribe to the channel if you're on itunes or spotify or another podcast app subscribe there so you don't miss an episode It'd also be much appreciated if you'd leave a review if you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you back here next week.